Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 90. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And our double feature this week, uh, as we continue part two of our remote podcasting venture, is Disco Dancer, the 1982 film by Babar Subhash, and Under the Cherry Moon, the 1986 film by the artist known as Prince. JT, why was it these two double features? I remember last week you said something about shaking your fat ass in the club <laughs> and that's all I could really yeah, remember. Well, uh, I freaking love the eighties and, uh, it's a great time for dance music. Um, and I love a lot of dance music. Uh, I brought these, uh, to the table because I just watched uh, disco dancer like about two weeks ago I was instantly sold. It was right up my alley. Um, the tunes were phenomenal. And that's really, I think, what took hold the most. And I was like, okay, like I want to like uh, get a movie that would pair well um, with that. And so I turned to uh, one of my favorite artists of like a dance uh, genre, and that's Prince. And I love the movie Purple Rain, and I had not seen Under the Cherry Moon. Uh, and that, I, I didn't have a lot of expectations going into it, but, um, it didn't meet all of them. They're like, we'll get into it, but, um, under the cherry moon was a little bit like being disappointed by an old friend letting me down. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Like when you, your, your friend texts you, you haven't seen him in years and he's like, dude, come to the club. And you're like, I, I actually don't remember this friend being like a club guy, like a dancer, but I'll, I'll go. And that friend being Michael Bauhaus. And uh, you go meet Michael Bauhaus at the club and you're like, I don't, you're, sometimes you're really good at dancing, but frankly, it's kind of embarrassing to be here with you. There's no woman at this club either. What's, what's going on? What's going on? This place sucks. It's a poor choice of club. Sucks, no, me uh... neither. I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm making a comedic scenario here out of, I don't know. Going to the club with Michael Bauhaus, yeah. and he takes you to a gay club and dances like a goofy man. <laughs> I, I'm just saying it's it's a bad club. There's just no one there. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, not not a not a not a homophobic <laughs> statement in any way. You know. Oh, okay, so it's a straight club that's just that's... so bad at appealing to women that yeah, you know, it yeah. becomes a gay club. They don't essentially, have... by default. Yeah, they don't have ladies' night. Yeah, well, if so. there are no women here, we might as well, <laughs> fellas. <laughs> Ever heard of the uh, U.S. Navy? Where I come from, we make do with what we got. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, fellas. I think it's time to uh, rein it in here. <laughs> Talk about Disco Dancer, a totally straight movie uh, about uh, just being a disco dancer i don't even know it, it's it's such an incredible like melodramatic uh rags to riches showbiz 
uh, I, I was often reminded of Boogie Nights and just like the grand sweeping career arcs uh, that just like run through, you know, 10, 15 minute segments that are just drenched in uh, neon or not even neon necessarily, but j- drenched in disco lights. Uh, and it's just so electric when it's being carried by the soundtrack and so impactful when it's being carried by the melodrama. I, I really loved Disco Dancer. J, JT, why don't you tell us a little bit about what this film is? Yeah, so you follow our our lead actor, Mitan Chakrabari who plays like a small like uh, a poor young lad who lives with his mom his dad is gone and he he just freaking loves to get down and dance and he's hopping around jiving but he's so good at dancing and he's having such a great time that it's pissing other people who are who are miserable off and uh he pisses off uh one of the wealthy elite and so they like just say that he stole like a guitar and like him and his mom uh, and they lie and they lock his mom up, throw her in jail. And so uh, he's like, okay, well like fuck this town. Uh, Fuck you. I'm going to become famous. I'm going to come back here and I'm going to own all your asses. Um, And, but in the most wholesome, pure way possible, because he just like, I I love just the uh, intro track where it's like, Guys like us live and die for a smile. Like, we don't care about silver or gold. We just want to fucking dance and play music. That that beginning uh, song is so beautiful. We just see uh, who become the two, you know, romantic leads. But as children singing and dancing this song about, like, you know, how the world is for the selfless. And it's just this beautiful... uh, egalitarian message before of course the you know class hierarchies come into play and his mother's thrown in jail and they're shamed by the whole town for being thieves you know yeah uh it's it's really great and to speak of the the music itself i mean from the first track the aesthetic is kind of built and it's it's very strange. It's like you have these grand sweeping camera movements that you'll find in other musicals, but there's also some really intimate handheld stuff. That first, uh, that first number feels almost documentary like as you're just following these two kids uh, singing and dancing through a field. And you, you also have these very strange uh, like 808 drums or percussion. Uh, the electronic percussion throughout is very kind of dissonant with the analog warmth of uh the images but i think it creates just like a really one-of-a-kind aesthetic that i haven't seen in cinema no yeah that's one thing i I noticed kind of from the jump kind of like this proto electronic music you know style soundtrack and uh, i really i really do love the soundtrack and a lot of just the what this movie does with sound i mean i think it's in you know either the first or second sequence you know when you get instruments involved and like the way it'll like set up instruments, it's almost like uh, the kid has like a, a loop machine or whatever. He just has to play the guitar once, and then you'll hear the guitar throughout. Then you pick up a yeah. another instrument, and you know that'll loop through too. And I mean, 
yeah, I mean, and the the photography of these sequences are great, and like I love how it's uh it's not afraid to overwhelm the the viewer with the visuals, whether it's you know with some like very directly you know centered bright lights or just like kind of like the spinning motion. I feel like the first spinning motion when he's dancing with his I guess you'd call him the men his mentor in a way, his disco dancer mm-hmm. mentor. It's like they, you see it spin around and around until like the people around them are getting a blurry, and it looks great. So after this opening segment, we fast forward to him and his mother still struggling and he is, you know, playing, uh, he's playing kind of like weddings and stuff. And he, he vows to, you know, sharpen his guitar to stab the city's heart. Which is just a, oh, what a wonderful turn of phrase. Even if it's not translated, you know, hundred percent accurately. I, I love the way it comes out at least. This is our motivation. Oh, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. No, 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 go ahead. It, it is motivating. Yeah, yeah. This is like, uh, yeah, we got to sharpen our microphones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I was going to say, it's like, you know, a lot of people feel like, you know, a lot of righteous actions, you know, comes from like a place of like, I don't know, like moral fortitude, but no, it's all about revenge and spite. And that's something that kind of fuels this podcast and why we're kind of running <laughs> as well as we do because we gotta have a lot of vitriol inside of us to keep going you know exactly we we didn't have uh we didn't have a city like bombay <laughs> that was shouting insults at us we have you know a milieu a digital city uh that is out to get us and yeah. we're, we're just coming through sharpening our intellect and our microphones to stab their digital hearts griffin newman imp- has had my mother imprisoned because i've been quarantining. <laughs> yeah. called the fbi yeah <laughs> As he's uh, sharpening, uh, we then are introduced to a rival of sorts, uh, Sam. And we see Sam feud with his manager after putting on just an amazing disco dancing show where they do in like an interpolation of the verses of Video Killed the Radio Star before going into something else for the chorus. Uh, and it, it's a really great number, uh, the first like disco stage number we see proper. And then this manager gets fed up and just another thread of spite and revenge starts <laughs> as he dumps Sam and is like, I'm just going to find anyone from one of these fucking towns you know and i'm gonna make them into the number one disco star uh and that is where the fate you know uh a lot the stars align for our protagonist there (laughs) i just love how like i think this movie like nails all of the melodrama like that like sam like uh just like in his room like making out with the guy's uh daughter um and and just like I didn't realize that was the manager's daughter. Okay. Just like yeah. just being now. like an absolute prick to uh, the manager David Brown, and just like it, like all of the like big plot points like move so fast like that, but are so explosive mm-hmm. and huge. I love the pace that this keeps up. Where I mean, you were saying earlier, Eddie, it covers so much ground in its runtime, and I like that. It keeps it like going and like knows like. You're here for the dancing sequences and just like makes yeah. the it stops and goes real long there and you just luxuriate in that. I was gonna say, like, and it does a good job of like building off of its 
like melodramatic sequences to enhance like the dramatics of the dance sequences and uh it's all in a good communication with each other these scenes you know like a good movie should yeah no exactly because i was thinking about boogie nights earlier and these both actually have pretty similar run times uh but the structures are so different obviously boogie nights following the you know scorsese like rise and fall study of a milieu as well uh this being more of a traditional like rising action type thing as he's you know uh becoming the number one disco star uh even though there is also that you know fall fall from grace of course but the way that how you were describing the melodrama feeds into those musical scenes uh, it's a really great way to keep the pace of this film moving too, because for every, I don't know, for every dramatic turning point, you have a pretty lengthy disco scene, uh, w- whether it's right before or right after or both. Mm-hmm. And I think the lengthy melodramatic scenes being bookended by lengthy disco scenes is just so perfect for like the, the roller coaster that this film is. And for keeping that going for two and a half hours or so. I, I think this one isn't even quite two and a half hours. It's like two hours, 20 minutes. Yeah. Uh, but I know a lot of people are turned off by the sheer length of a lot of Indian cinema. And, you know, I I, I understand. I've been there. And um, I'm f- obviously far from a- any kind of, like, knowledgeable cinephile on Indian cinema. But you just got to go in knowing that, like, yeah, these movies are long, but they know how to pace them. They make them long for a reason, you know? <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. And I feel like, I mean, I, you know, like what you said, you know, with these movies usually traditionally being longer, they know how to work within that framework. But also just like, just looking at movies at large, I feel like, you know, there's certain run times. And of course, you know, and I still am, but like love a short movie, love a 60, 70 minute movie. But it's like a lot of these movies, you know, when when they're longer, they just have a, a chance to work things out in just better ways. So I'm, I'm becoming more of a fan of the longer runtime too. And kind of, uh, you know, maybe much like this podcast, not, not too much of a fan of the, the median runtime anymore, you know, uh, yeah. 110 minutes, you know, not exactly sounding that appealing anymore, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. We also have not discussed the fighting that takes place in this movie. There's also a fight every 20 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the fight scenes are all really great. There's one where Jimmy is beat up by this gang of like snapping guys. Oh, that <laughs> fucking rules. <laughs> yeah, they, they like because they, they kind of have like that, you know, I guess West Side Story kind of snapping pace to it. But they also kind of just like slow it down too. And I kind of like how, when that Cause like that fight kind of has like a, a medium uh, period where it's just kind of like them just kind of fucking kicking, you know, Jimmy around and whatever. And then I kind of like how, uh, you know, he just, again, again, I guess, you know, possessed by pure, you know, spite, you know, just find something within him that just makes him a, a premier fighter. Once he's at this like peak of stardom, basically the intermission break uh, comes where he performs at a party for like the mayor's daughter and he finds himself face to face with the man who 18 years earlier uh, arrested his mother uh, in that first uh, scene. And he like refuses to shake his hand. And really, this could be the end of a, a certain type of movie of just like integrity, kind of like he mm-hmm. fulfills mm-hmm. that arc of avengement and uh, integrity. But of course, the, the post-intermission uh fares well worth it oh well i like how it pairs up the forces of antagonism there where it's like 
throughout like you build you get sam like in the pen there like jimmy uh spiting the man who wronged him it's like so many people are like conspiring it's like he's such a likable guy it's hard to build uh forces that hate him but it makes sense that like they would be uh characters equally driven by revenge and hate yeah and kind of after the intermission is kind of when like a lot of I don't know, like, because you kind of have, like, this rise and, like, like you said, like, he, him, like, refusing to shake that man's hand seems like a a big moment. But then, like, the games kind of really begin and then everyone kind of starts conspiring. Like, the man is like, we got to, you know, find a way to get get rid of this guy. And then, you know, Jimmy's going into overdrive, you know, it's a, it's, it's a whole different side of this movie. There is now a plot on the life of Jimmy. Uh, they've even like hired a guy from England, uh, a bald guy who wears sunglasses, <laughs> an assassin who is fucking awesome. Now I was going to say that's a proto Statham, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> moment, kind of willing Statham Absolutely. into existence with that character. I was almost going to say it, that's like the much more generous read than I had because uh, even though I loved it, it almost felt like the obligatory white guy in a lot of like hong kong action movies that's in their yeah. whole scene but like dragged out for like a whole character's worth mm-hmm. but he does kind of has a have a uh, a stathemian quality to him <laughs> he kind of sticks around enough to where where you get to know him a little bit more than you, you think yeah. he might have so he rigs the electric guitar uh that jimmy's gonna play uh to electrocute him and jimmy's mother hears about this she tries to intervene, and in front of a crowd awaiting his performance, Jimmy's mom grabs the guitar and electrocutes herself to death. And, I mean, we haven't really talked about how much of a mama's boy Jimmy is, but, like, <laughs> he would quite literally rather eat his mother's food out of her hands than use his stardom to get pussy. That, that is all yeah. he cares about, is his mother. Kids don't have that type of respect nowadays, you know? They won't let their mom feed them in public. You know, I think, I think yeah. next time I see my mom, I'm going to, de- I'm going to demand, you know, a hand fed meal just so to show her that I appreciate her. It's no utensils. Just stick it right. in. <laughs> I just like how it like builds throughout at the beginning where it like establishes like the, I mean, the main crux of the central conflict is like wanting to avenge things for his mother. And so like truly the worst revenge you could do is like kill her. And they formally recognize how much melodrama is in that moment and just milk it (laughs) for so much pain. Like when that like splash of like color happens and she's like electrocuted and dies. And then like, the first time like Jimmy like is about to play the guitar again afterwards and he hears like the scream and like sees her face at the guitar the way like because what this does with sound is impressive alone on like a musical sense but the way it handles like moments there where it will like fade out like sort of the background and just have like a little bit of silence and then like an eerie score creep in and then have that scream come out it's a really really a like painful moment yeah it, absolutely and the color work there is so incredible when she gets electrocuted it's like 
I don't know. I mean, it looks like it could be, you know, a psychedelic rock album cover from the set. It looks like, uh, is, are you experienced the Hendrix one? That's all red pretty much with his face. Uh, it's just incredible and such a horrifying image, uh, but also such a, such a metal image. Yeah. That'd be crazy to see Hard that rock and roll, man. I, I have conflicting feelings about this, you know, cause it's like, this looks great, but what's happening is so awful. Um, yeah. Like that image is so striking. It's like, it, it makes sense how, deeply it affects jimmy throughout like the the remainder of the film and how he's like traumatized by even you know being near a guitar because you know that image is strong for any dad rock splainers out there uh i was talking about the electric ladyland cover not the are you experienced <laughs> i just don't want to get any hate man there's a lot of confused <laughs> listeners out there being like what the fuck is he talking about yeah they're like what it's just like a picture of them like no, no the electric ladyland cover come on man <laughs> anyway jimmy is then you know guitar phobic and basically just like in a hospital too like he's injured and can't perform and uh you know the the low point is very clear uh and it's it's really too bad because he, i don't think he, he realized you know uh when his mom was going to die that the uh the disco international competition was just (laughs) (laughs) this thing it's not going to happen without this i mean come on how are you going to have the disco international competition without india being represented by jimmy and and what are you going to watch uh disco the disco french people up there you know what i mean those guys yeah, what? The Disco Parisians, technically. Disco Parisians. The three, the three teams were Africa, Paris, and uh, India, if I recall correctly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very, uh, and it's it's just like classic 80s movie kind of thing. Like It reminded me of the movie Heavenly Bodies, which I'm a huge fan of, where there's just these kind of indiscreet competitions <laughs> that are just like so non-existent in real life, but such a great excuse for cinematic excess. Yeah, and this is just the perfect excuse for cinematic excess, uh, and all, all of the disco performances. the The sets feel so like expressive, but low budget too, because they're all within the realm of like an auditorium hall. You know, mm-hmm. like it can't go outside of that. You can't have the crazy exterior sets for a musical number in this. They're all confined, uh, so it just goes so crazy with the lighting, the montage, and the camera movement to make up for the confinement of space. No, true. And like sometimes I feel like during like uh, certain you know sequences, there'll be kind of like a longer take two that kind of like gives it like a quality of like yeah it is like like it it is almost kind of like watching talent show footage in a way but it's like it's more expressive and lively than that and like that just has a yeah. certain endearment to it and it, it's itself. and the performances themselves yeah. i mean we haven't really talked about it but so fucking good obviously yeah. um the, the 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 dissonance of the soundtrack and the actual performance you know is something you just have to kind of reckon with right away when you see a guy hitting a bongo and you hear those 808s <laughs> <laughs> but like once you kind of grapple with that there's so much beauty to be found in that and there's so much greatness with just like five dudes with guitars just using a guitar as a prop but like so wonderfully for a dance sequence you know uh and it's i i love disco man i'm throwing away my rock and roll records <laughs> and I'm, I'm ready to say i love disco yeah you know not to get into the the rock conversation too heavily but you know watching a movie like this it's kind of hard to see it's like why did people hate hate disco so much you know what i mean it's kind of <laughs> 
kind of like what you're saying, JT. It's like, it seems like, you know, the people who can't dance, you know, disco dance, it seems like they get a little bit jealous <laughs> see, uh, Jimmy dancing out there. So, um, Hey, I, I enjoy both genres of music. So I, you know, I've, I've no problem with either. So I don't, I don't get the controversy there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, to, to like, I don't want to give the short shrift to all the other dancers that appear because there are so many, you know, great numbers with a lot of people in them, but Jimmy's individual skill, obviously they, they do a great job of showcasing, uh, not, it's not just manager David Brown that makes him a star. He is like this unique disco talent and, uh, it's, it's a thrill to watch him dance up there. Yeah. There are some, he's a great disco dancer. Some dance moves that are just like, so baffling, but like, it's like really cool and interesting. Like there are ones that like seem low effort that like even I can do where he's like writhing on like the ground there for a little (laughs) bit, like sort of shaking. It's like, it's crazy. There's so much like, I mean, we've talked about the spectacle of all the formal elements, but just like what he is able to do with his performance while like just seeming like, like effortlessly charming as well is uh, really impressive. And then like taking like after, um, after he goes through like the tragedy tragedy that we've like talked about, um, and sort of starts to bounce back from that at the end and like sings his way back into <laughs> it. You can like, I think there's like a subtle difference there in like his performance and like the music itself, where it's like sort of taking in the somber, like quality of life and death. And that like, all you can do is dance and have a good time. Like just live it. Like people will die. Yes. But you have to disco dance. (laughs) No, that, that scene, that scene's crazy when uh, his old mentor shows up and, you know, sings that old song we were talking about in the beginning, you know, guys like us, you know, we'll do it for a smile. And, uh, yeah, it, it kind of helps with his inspiration to where he sings through it. And like, yeah, even his, like his girlfriend has a dance sequence at the beginning to try to encourage him. Like the way that, that, uh, that big climactic scene is built up, they really, really juice it up with emotions and it, you know, it really got me. Yeah. There's like three numbers leading up to it, just convincing him to do the last number. Like that's <laughs> it, it's so awesome. The the one that his girlfriend does, "Come on, Jimmy," is so good because it's so repetitive. But like the camera just looking at Jimmy's facial expressions with all of these crazy expressive disco lights going on behind it, but he is just like giving kind of the same expression that he gave when he was getting beaten up. Uh, and just like that really somber, like vengeful look, but like also just trying to process everything uh, while the crowd at the Disco International competition is just going apeshit for this <laughs> new song, Come On Jimmy, that she's making up on the spot. a beautiful moment i i really loved it so then there's the reprise of the introduction song and then the the kind of final revenge scene uh, where jimmy he disposes of the bad guy well they like <laughs> kill jimmy's mentor too there like yeah. that like yeah. at the end of that sequence because that's like something that like i've i forgot from the first time i had watched this where i was like i didn't like 
that's a really bleak moment there. Like, yeah. like you get another death there at the end. Yeah. And I like, um, I don't know, something like initial, like that uh, original song and then the reprisal of that, like really get to the core of why I like the spirit of this movie. It's like so full of mm-hmm. life and like happiness and just like dancing being a, a good way to have a good time. And like, how, like counteracting that with like the real death and like sadness of the world uh, makes that feel very impactful and not like a hokey or corny message. Just like, I don't know, really simple. Any final thoughts on this one, Malcolm, before we wrap it up, give it a bullet rating? Yeah, no, yeah, I agree, JT. I mean, yeah, the spirit of this movie is great because I, I do like, I like how uh, Jimmy, you know, uh, originally he's talking like, you know, the beginning is like, I'm going to, I'm going to get the whole city. The whole city's going to pay for this. And then he comes to the city, he sees the people struggling in the city and he, you know, he becomes, he happily becomes a figure for it. And it's kind of, you know, what you're saying, like, you know, it is fueled by spite, but he finds a way to, you know, channel that spite into something positive and then, you know, find a way through his craft to, you know, truly deal with his emotions. He, he transcends, you know, it's something that we all hope to do. I mean, even beyond all this, all this, you know, inspirational Wes Watson stuff we're speaking here, um, <laughs> um, like just, just the dance sequences alone, you know, worth the price of admission. Great, great use of just bright fucking lights and uh, four bullets for me. Um, yeah, I'm going to go four and a half bullets. Uh, this is a classic for me. I'm excited to be able to revisit this movie. And like, I think it will give me a lot of comfort throughout my life. Um, to talk about, like, I, I mean, the music in general is fantastic. I don't think I'm going to stop listening, listening to it anytime soon. Uh, the guy who did the soundtrack is Boppy Larry, the, um, self-proclaimed like disco king and like oh, India. I've, awesome. I've seen a little bit of stuff with him. He seems like a crazy dude. I think he's like a right wing politician uh, <laughs> too, um, which is awesome. But like, I want to check out uh, ironically awesome, ironically awesome. No clarifications. You're not allowed to do that. On okay. This okay. <laughs> edit that out. Edit that out. Um, it's cool that he's a right wing politician. I do believe that. Uh, um, but he like, has some other like disco films of this era that I really want to seek out. But I think like accessibility, like even with all of the lovely resources that I've been endowed with, I've had a lot of difficulty, but if anyone out there can point me to more disc, like uh, Bollywood disco movies, that's what my soul needs at this moment. Um, Yeah, this is great. I also think this is great and I'm going to give it four bullets as well. Um, There's just so much going on in this movie. The whole thread that you mentioned, Malcolm, about how he felt about the city and then seeing how the people were living once he had money, you know, uh, is just like you could just pull at that thread and do, you know, a class analysis of the movie that I'm not equipped to do because I don't understand or I don't know about, you know, Indian politics and the class hierarchy, which seems distinguished from ours, but obviously just as vital to their cinema and uh yeah i don't know there's just like i i can't wait to watch it again frankly there's so many scenes and like moments that i just like want to watch again 
Reopen the discotheques, man. That's what I, that's what I'm saying, man. Yeah, Governor Newsom, <laughs> <laughs> can't bring that that joy away from us. We'll be right back on extended clip. And we're back on extended clip. It's not Malcolm in the Middle yet. You know what it is? It's the Patreon corner. Um, please go to patreon.com slash extended clip and give us $2 a month for a new episode every week. It's well worth it. It's it's money well spent. I know I, in the past I said it's $2 per episode, but I just wanted to correct oh, myself. Oh, I was actually ready to drop that. Yeah? I, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I forgave you. Okay, you don't no. need to uh, for okay. your sins anymore. No, no, I know. I See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I have to clear the record straight. I have to make things right. You know what I mean? It's $2 a month. Um, we just did an episode on Notre Musique by uh, Jean-Luc Godard. You know, one of our, uh, you know, it's a class favorite here over at Extended Clip. And, um, you know, there's a lot of other episodes on there, too. So check it out. That's so true. Yeah, I'm going to be saying it all week. Uh, it's the perfect gift for your loved one for yeah. Valentine's Day. I think uh, it's a romantic gesture. You could, I mean, like, honestly, look, I'm not going to tell Eddie. Like, split we, with your significant other each a dollar? You can fucking do that, you <laughs> bum. Like, come on. Uh, for a, love? A, yeah, yeah, and you just put one headphone in your ear. One in your sweetie's oh, ear, shit. and listen oh, to extended so clip sweet. Valentine's Day holding hands, like Nick and Nora's infinite playlist. <laughs> you could be like them, and, but you're Jay-Z listening is to such a romantic. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. I'm more of a realist. I have I have a different scenario. So what you're gonna want to do is, uh, if you're listening to this and you have a sweetie, she's probably a girl that listens to podcasts. So she already has a Patreon account. So just add our thing to it. It's only two bucks. You won't notice. And uh, do the one earphone thing again, but like pretend you're listening to music with her. But the one earphone is listening to the extended clip after hours <laughs> while her earphone is yeah. listening to you guys' romantic playlist. I say put it on while you guys are having sex with one another. <laughs> well, that was the implication. I didn't want to spell it out for you. I didn't want to imply that our listeners would ever have sex. But like in a, in a, in a gruff way. You know what I mean? <laughs> when the sex is rough, you put on extended clip after hours. It's in the background. It's, it's echoing. It's not, it's, it's not, it's, it's like, it's not your choice it's like you wouldn't choose to put it on but that's what's playing you're just going to town like and yeah. hearing ryan swen talk to you about obayashi <laughs> like that's that's good knowledge it's called multitasking you know yeah. so get on that now it's everyone's favorite segment malcolm in the middle yep. uh, malcolm did you watch anything noteworthy this week? Um, well, you know, um, you know, as as scholars in uh, you know cinema, I, I think we're all you know we kind of you know a wise man said you know I, I never leave school I'm always learning, and uh, so for that reason, <laughs> for that reason, I did my homework and I watched uh, Abbas Kiarostami's documentary Homework, and you know the concept of this he's interviewing various schoolboys on the subject of homework and like the interview setup is like it's shot in a classroom it resembles a classroom and instead of the substitute it's old ab it's obvious and he's asking you the questions 
and uh, he's asking these kids questions like, what do you like more, cartoons or homework? And, you know, a lot of them, since they're in kind of like this classroom setting, kind of give like this very like, uh, you know, kind of shivering, I want to be a good boy answer. It's like, oh, I like I like both, but, uh, you know, I love homework. Homework's, you know, the, the main concern. And uh, it's obvious Kirstami's kind of playing with, you know, academic settings and kind of exposing them as like, you know, maybe sometimes, you know, these rigid academic settings, they're not actually conductive to um, learning or just like the truth or whatever, you know? Um, so I feel like, you know, with kind of like how he shoots these interviews, he really shows the intensities. He's really putting hard questions on these boys. He's really, uh, you know, kind of putting them through the ringer, so to speak. But uh, for a simple documentary that kind of just kind of stays to like this very tight uh, interview style, you know, kind of just cutting back between like Abbas and the cameraman, I, you know, I, th I feel like it does it does a lot with the, you know, it's kind of very strict style and I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. The, the greatest like cinematic, uh, portrayal of youth education, just like young schoolboys, uh, <laughs> is always Kiristami for me. Like w when I saw where's the friend's house the first time, the opening and closing scenes, I guess in the classroom just absolutely destroyed me. And so I was almost scared to watch homework, knowing that it's basically 90 minutes of that, but, you know, uh, fully nonfiction. And it is, like, really depressing, too. Yeah. Just, like, uh, the way he approaches the almost authoritarian rule of this classroom with such, like, a candid approach is so great because... I don't know, his filmmaking form is so playful and so all over the place in terms of just, like, his thinking through cinema that it totally contradicts, like, the extremely rigid educational style. Yeah, yeah, and, it, it, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of it, you know, gets down to, like, um, you know, parents trying to help their kids and they don't understand the homework and they get frustrated <laughs> at them. And I do, love, I do love this impassioned interview by... Uh, um, just a father, concerned father, who has a very clear-headed uh, view of things, kind of laying it out how, uh, you know, kind of like how, how homework is tearing families apart. Um, so, yeah, it, in the end, uh, anti-homework movie. Don't do your homework. Absolutely. <laughs> JT, did you watch anything? Um, yeah, like right before uh, we got uh, together to record, I watched... Uh, a John Ford movie, a very, very old one. Uh, one of his early, like earliest that's still like found. Um, it's 1917's Bucking Broadway. I, I downloaded a lot of Ford recently, and I'm trying to make my way through his work from the very beginning now. And I really haven't seen that much of his like silent stuff. And uh, I was really taken aback, like how developed his style was and like his like fixations were even from the beginning. Like there's obviously like very great, like deep focus photography where you have like beautiful uh, vistas and like ranch hands, like working on them. Uh, it's like a Western about a guy named uh, uh, Cheyenne Harry, who is a, but a lowly ranch hand. Uh, and he's in love with the uh, like the the ranch owner's uh, wife, or I mean not wife, uh, daughter. And he's like getting ready to like propose to her, and that's all going fine and dandy. He's built her a like 
a, a small, simple house that they can live in. But that all goes afoul when uh, she's taken away by a slick man from the big city. Uh, and then he sort of goes off and like tries to win her back and all that jazz. But it's really great in the sense that like there are like very intimate moments that I feel like I, one of, that's one of the best things about Ford's work. Much like Eastwood, he is a guy who knows like what little details are just like everyday poetry. Um, and there's one part in an early scene uh, where Harry is uh, letting the ranch owner know that he proposed to his daughter and they're getting hitched. And uh, there's like a close-up shot of him like just like fidgeting like his foot back and forth that I just think like it's it's a, it's a simple beautiful little gesture and I like how uh, Ford was interested in that from the very beginning and then also just like the central conflict of like modernity versus uh, the past again is present with like the uh, um, rich big city guy rolls up in a car uh, to this ranch and it just feels like it feels like two different time periods just like really butting heads aggressively. Um, it's pretty good. I would highly recommend it. And I'm like really excited now to see um, like what of the Ford silence will stand among his best work. Nice. I really want to check out some Ford silence. I haven't really gone earlier than the, uh, the Will Rogers stuff. So definitely interested in checking that out. I watched uh, another one by one of the old masters. I watched uh, a new one by one of the old masters, uh, Rifkin's Festival, uh, a film by Woodrow Allen. And uh, Rifkin's Festival is <laughs> such a strange movie. And it's it's weird because what I was about to say like would have made it come off very negative. And all, all of my descriptions almost sound negative. But the experience I had watching the film was otherworldly <laughs> and not in like a so bad it's good way either. It's just such like exactly what you would think it is. It's not that like um his late style progresses from one film to the next. It's more that it goes exponentially from one film to the next, uh, you know, for, like going from his, all of his dumb New Yorkisms in a rainy day in New York and having like Griffin Newman making a, a modern film noir classic in the making or whatever. Uh, this one just being like, all of the worst tendencies, you know, having to shoot in San Sebastian basically as an advertisement for that film festival, because that's like all he can make at this point. And, you know, Storaro is still experimenting with digital like he has in the last few, but the, the lack of budget is so clear. And there are things that completely contradict the, the visual language that Alan has set up over the years. And it seems like, you know, Storaro is probably directing all of the visual aspects at this point, because, you know, unless Woody is really obsessed with digital cinematography and, you know, uh, so much so that he radicalized his form. Uh, and many would not call it radicalization either, because, yeah, it's not like the most formally insane shit ever. Uh, it's just like remarkable how different it looks from his earlier movies. But to talk about an actual old classic, I also watched Throne of Blood by Kurosawa. And I I have yet to love a Kurosawa movie, but this one finally did it. This this was just fucking ridiculous. Uh, it's his like it's his transposing of Macbeth 
uh, into a, a samurai epic where Toshiro Mufune is like the greatest overactor of all time. Uh, the the cinemascope frame that I've seen a few Kurosawa's in uh, is gone and it's back to Academy ratio. And it looks like he's just like, it not even looks, it sounds like he's too big for the frame. You know, his screams are too big for the frame. His presence is otherworldly in this movie. Uh, and the way that Kurosawa moves the camera feels so pointed. It's, it's almost film school 101 to say it's always like dramatically motivated, but it's like, it's impactful without even having to think about why it's dramatically motivated. It's, it's, you'll, you'll have a, a push in of about, you know, five or six feet that just feels like a rush of blood going through your whole body. And you're not really sure why. And then maybe you pause and think about it, but you don't really need to intellectualize it. It also feels very raw and elemental and of the moment. Um, it's it's really fantastic the more i think about it the the way that he is able to turn shakespeare into cinema is like better than so much of what i've seen i mean i still prefer orson welles maybe but like the long scenes of just riding on horseback in complete like enshrouded in fog or in branches is just remarkable and there are these long passages of pure action uh, that just have no uh, ties to you know Shakespearean drama. It's just men on horseback, uh, which is one of the great things you can shoot in cinema. So um, yeah, if if you haven't seen Throne of Blood, or you haven't checked out any films by this fella Akira Kurosawa, I want to check one out. Yeah, Woody Allen finally good again. He's finally got his <laughs> mojo back. Kurosawa, AK, finally good. We finally he's finally kind of proven his chops here, and we got to give him the credit he, he he deserves. I feel insane talking about Rifkins, but it's straight up like my favorite Woody in so long. And we talked about how much of a stupid good time Cafe Society was. Yeah. Like how both of us left the theater just like boom, Cafe Society, good time. Like that was a great movie. <laughs> uh, th- this was not that easy. This was like this was the most painstaking thing. There's all these like flat flashbacks to these criterion core movies uh, yeah. that is like wallace sean's a reimagining of like himself in breathless or <laughs> Jules and Jim or that's i i'm gonna check this it's out it's so funny it's like because that those reference points have been all the cinema that woody allen has known since 1968 like yeah <laughs> known about cinema and it's so funny that now he's just literally placing wallace sean in those scenarios <laughs> yeah. He's remembering the classics, you know, yeah. his own personal classics, his own walk down memory lane. Yeah. It's it's insane. Um, it's an insane movie, and I can't even recommend it, honestly. Uh, watch Throne of Blood. If if you if you know you're going to get a good time out of Rifkin's Festival, check it out, but watch Throne of Blood. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back on Extended Clip. Once upon a time in France, there lived a bad boy named Christopher Tracy. Only one thing mattered to Christopher money. The women he knew came in all sizes, shapes and colors, and they were all rich, very rich. Private concertos, kind words and fun is what he had to offer them. Yes, Christopher lived for all women, but he died for one. Somewhere along the way, he learned the true meaning of love. And we're back on extended clip, the B movie today. 
Under the Cherry Moon, 1986, a film by Prince. Um, JT, why why this film? Why Prince? Who who is this guy anyway? Um, one of one of the horniest short men you will ever meet. Like I uh, like just it was funny this time around because I feel like Purple Rain did a better job of disguising how small he is. But there's that shot early. This is just a brief digression, but there's that shot where he's like walking with kids. And, like, he is just, like, barely <laughs> taller than them. <laughs> um, but uh, I love Prince's music. Uh, he's great. Uh, Purple Rain I loved mostly because it's, like, a like a musical performance. And they've built, like, a kind of uh, dumb and, like... Uh, like genre movie around it uh, of just like the rise, the rise of a young artist and like a romantic plot. And I like didn't know much about uh, Under Cherry Moon, just like that it was like he had directed, which I think like doing a little like further research, there was like um, there's a woman directing the movie who did some like Madonna music videos. And like, I think like had a reasonable, I think she, the, the woman who directed Pet Cemetery. um, as well um, was set to direct, but then like left after 16 days of shooting because of like disagreements with Prince. But I knew his like musical uh, performances wouldn't be like as big of a deal as in Purple Rain. But honestly, that was like, like I felt like music would be incorporated in a lot better way. And that was like something I was let down by, but generally like the music in the movie, I really liked. I like Mm -hmm. Prince's stuff in general. I mean, I hang around more on the earlier end and like the more popular albums, but there are some good deep cuts too. There's a, one of my favorite Prince deep cuts. Another really funny story is called, he had this album that was like pulled at first, but was later released his, the black album or the funk Bible. Um, But he pulled it at first because he was taking so much ecstasy he thought that like this demon spooky electric was like possessed the album. <laughs> and and so he was like, this is unholy and bad. So oh he, he like, it, it was all set to go and just, he was like, no. And uh, I think in the nineties was when it got like a more proper like release or whatever. But yeah, he's a, he's an interesting dude. Uh, but I was kind of let down by this movie. Yeah, yeah. Malcolm, are you a prince head? Yeah, no, yeah. I, you know, I, I am a prince head, and I feel like, you know, I might be a fake fan, you know, because I, uh, what do you call it? I kind of got into him after he passed, but I, I really, I really delved into a lot of his albums, and like, like JT said, I do like the early work, and like just thinking about his music, like, uh, one of the great qualities I like about Prince is like he'll have like one song per album usually that's just like a crazy dirty story or whatever, or like I think of like. <laughs> yeah. uh, like lady cab driver like a song about like like uh just like you get a lady cab driver and you eventually start having sex with her and how that's nice and or or sister there's like a whole production company of adult films that's based their entire enterprise on that song (laughs) exactly Exactly. he's 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 sparking the imaginations of a lot of people i mean you want to talk about porn industry what about on uh i think the album dirty mind where he talks about having uh, sex with his sister or making out with her. I don't, I don't know. There's a song basically <laughs> dedicated to incest with his sister on dirty mind, which is actually, that's probably my favorite Prince album. And, um, 
and I've never seen the Purple Rain movie, unfortunately. So kind of coming into this, I didn't really know what to expect. And like, I think like you said, JT, I was expecting maybe more musical sequences. I would, ex- I was expecting to see him sing or whatever. And it, you know what? I feel like this movie does have a lot of like, kind of like maybe some of the kind of like strange quirks and Prince's music that could be seen also in Prince's music like this. There's some strange yeah. elements to this movie, but I think a lot of the time it just kind of bores me, but it's like, it is like, it is like a, a kind of a strange mix of a lot of things that I like, you know, even outside of Prince's music, just like in terms of, uh, I don't know, formal choices and all that stuff. There's a lot of good stuff there, but it never quite comes together for me. Yeah. I really wanted to, and I, I've seen some people on like, in the, that I follow on Letterbox have really reclaimed this because this one, oh, was a big hit at the Razzies. Uh, <laughs> people hated this movie for it being like really self indulgent about like Prince and like what I, I really wanted to go into this like that I'd be like, oh, this is probably something that's actually really good because the critics are fucking idiots. Um, but like it, I, I really agree with your sentiment where it does a lot of like interesting things. And I think like the notion of it being sort of like this kind of like sort of an old Hollywood movie yeah. type at points uh, is is kind is neat, but it's like very boring. Yeah. Unfortunately, I do agree. Uh, the film is so interesting stylistically. It also is very inconsistent but i i generally like that i feel like i so i'm not yeah. sure what it is that puts me off of the the grab bag here because you have michael bauhaus uh one of the great cinematographers of all time really uh and you have him pulling off some just ridiculous maneuvers at times uh let alone some of these compositions that are gorgeous in uh nice really taking advantage of the landscape uh, but you have that shot in the cafe uh, where it's just a 360 degree pan, but really it turns into a 720 degree pan uh, because he pans around twice. And you just like, I don't know, just seeing the, I guess, hustle and bustle of the restaurant. Of course, every uh, space of the frame looks different the second time around. And of course, it's played as a dramatic entrance for one character, uh, Mary. And it's there are moments like that that make me think like what was going on on this set like how were they even <laughs> thinking of these stylistic maneuvers because at the same time there are certain aspects of this that feel so shoddy so unprofessional kind of uh and that's something i find endearing in a lot of movies but i think having like the height of studio power and pulling off these things that are straight up masterful makes the other aspects of the film that I don't like as much, maybe stand out a little more in comparison. No, definitely. I definitely agree with that. And it is like, I don't know, like it is a, a movie that is like, uh, it's wanting to depict luxury and like, you know, a lot of the like, uh, like finer things. And it's like, it's very focused on, um, on its vanity you know i think i think people probably called this uh, a vanity project uh negatively when it came out and i think they're not wrong necessarily and there's some aspects of that where i like kind of prince being a little bit more self-indulgent and like i do like kind of like a lot of the masterful camera techniques going on here but i guess i don't i guess it's it's you know i maybe maybe i'm thinking to save the cat 
mentality here, but it's like it feels like nothing happens in this <laughs> yeah. movie. Like it and it's feels like, like nothing happens. And it's not like nothing happens in like a hangout movie way either. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like exactly. I was I was ready for it to be a little aimless towards the beginning when it was like um like uh him and his friend like hanging out and just fucking about um and just like just like seeing like that like classic horny prince um just doing that um mixed with like a lot of really beautiful cinematography i was like okay this is gonna like be nice to just sort of be in this world where it like feels like uh, like i don't know like an elaborate music video um but it just didn't like stick to me because i feel like there's an undercurrent of a more like blake snydery like screenplay 101 yeah. like style structure underneath well, that like it is a warner brothers movie like i feel like they definitely were saying to that like you gotta you know rein it in. you gotta yeah a clear story structure and there is a very perfunctory plot running through yeah mm-hmm. and so to the setup of the movie is uh prince plays a man named christopher him and his friend tricky are uh they're from miami but they're they're uh, fleeing some money, uh, I think, that they owe someone in Miami. So they are staying in Nice, France. Uh, and they are just hanging out, having a good old time, uh, not paying rent to the hot French landlord. And uh, then they're introduced to a woman who stands to inherit, like, millions and millions of francs on her 21st birthday, which is tonight. And she also <laughs> happens to be very beautiful. So they go uh, to her party, and uh, a, a love triangle, a Jules and Jim-like triangle is formed, <laughs> uh, where they are, you know, initially out for her money, but of course fall in love with her madly, and, you know, the two friends have to... Uh, you know, at first they're able to transcend that because they love each other so much as friends. But then, of course, it turns very bitter and melodramatic toward the end. Well, that's uh, one thing, like, uh, in terms of uh, dramatic, like, like if you're look to look at this, like, with that, like, screenwritery dramatic lens. I mean, this is something that I think also exists in Purple Rain, but I just don't, like, it's more funny than anything else to me. But, like, it's like in a love triangle, like in like a prince vanity project like there's no like prince is really leading hard uh, as opposed <laughs> to tricky and it's like you tricky. know he's go- he's go- he's he's gonna he prince is gonna be the one that lands out on top and i mean similarly i think in purple rain it's like morris day and the time are like going against prince and the revolution and it's like oh this prince fucking sucks and you can like hear the difference in the music there but like with this, it's just something that like I think is part of the reason why there is like some energy taken out of it. Because if it like were to go a more plotty route, I think their like their their confrontation um, and like conflict would have to be more present to like make it yeah, interesting. I, yeah, exactly. Because I think like the the scenes where it does tease out more like plotty stuff, more details are frankly just so boring. Like Mary's family, uh, all of that stuff. Especially when Prince isn't even on screen. Yeah, I mean, come on, it's a it's a real uh, uh, what's it called situation. Fuck. I know who you're. 
Poochie? From The Simpsons. Is it Poochie? Yeah. <laughs> Real Poochie situation. <laughs> no, yeah, that poor, poor Tricky, you know. I know girls uh, Girls usually love a guy named Tricky. That's usually uh, indicative of positive qualities. But uh, Tricky, poor Tricky never had a chance, you know, up uh, against old Prince. And uh, I think I'm maybe I maybe it just skimmed through my mind, but I don't know if we mentioned that Prince is his profession is a gigolo when this starts, but he's he's um you know what I mean not the traditional image of a gigolo. He's the type of gigolo that feeds feeds the streets. He's a uh, you know you know passing out you know dollar bills to kids and stuff like that. I thought that was a you know an interesting you know Prince always comes out on top like a uh, type scenario. I I like that. I like uh. I'm I'm a sucker for that. I I you know I think that there's like yeah. definitely so I that continues a thread from Purple Rain, which I think is interesting. Of like yeah. Prince plays sort of like uh, a down on his luck kid who's like uh sort of work like pseudo working class, and I like yeah. that Prince is carrying that aspect out uh of his image as well. And like the little continuations from Purple Rain there, I think are neat because uh, Tricky is also. Um, like a supporting character who's like the right hand man to the villain in Purple Rain, uh, and I like that like carryover, building the Prince universe. You know, yeah. he was he was trying to get something <laughs> off the ground before people really real. I mean, you know, people were saying like I don't know, like a lot of those like early 2010s Marvel films were kind of just like boring and useless. Even you know the you know the brain dead Marvel fans will tell you that you know Prince never really got his chance to really, you know, spread his wings, you know, get a tricky spinoff movie, all that type of stuff. Um, I guess people, That's true. people weren't responding to kind of his, uh, almost 30s style light comedy. <laughs> thing that he was... Yeah. That's, that's another thing about this movie. Maybe some find it more endearing than I did, but frankly, yeah. the, the like PG insults as opposed to like the very like erotic fantasies <laughs> are like, it's a very strange juxtaposition. <laughs> no, it is like, I, I was, cause there's a great scene actually towards the back end of the movie where uh prince is telling the, the Mary, you know, I think she's saying like, you know, he's like looking at her. It's like, why don't you take a photograph? And he's like, I want more. And I'm like, that's, that's a good moment. That's, that has a little bit of passion to it. You know, it's a little bit charged up where it is kind of like the goofy nature of like, you know, this black and white kind of classic Hollywood, almost pre-code call it Hollywood kind of thing. They're, <laughs> yeah. Kind of, they're kind of going for is like, you know, I feel like that's what kind of makes like, kind of like the light, um, light homophobic jokes prince does i think that works with well within the framework of like this weird like 30s thing but other than that like i didn't even notice those well like i don't know like uh not not homophobic but just like uh, there's like a lot a lot of like gay teasing like between him and tricky like i don't know like him talking about (laughs) that that stuff was strange to me too I, i at first i was very interested because it opens on them like like he's doing bath time and Tricky's like helping about bath yeah. time and they're like very <laughs> close with each other and it's like it feels like an embedded tradition with them too too like it's like it feels like that's what they do every night it's like okay here I'll get your phone call ready for you get in the bath you know yeah and uh I, I their relationship I'm not saying it's you know sus it's just like <laughs> I, I thought it was more interesting in the first half and then it becomes part of that love triangle and yeah. yeah, I guess there are some offhanded references to them being gay together or whatever in the back half. But in the first half, it's like, I, I don't know. I kind of like how obscured their relationship was. 
Well, yeah, I guess I was kind of getting at, like, I don't know. It's like you, you're talking about in the first half how, like, you know, he's in the bathtub and in the bathroom. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's like how, <laughs> uh, I don't know, like movies in the 30s would have straight characters doing things like that. And there wouldn't yeah. be the implication of gayness or whatever because it wasn't as... Yeah. Hadn't been invented <laughs> yeah, yet. Yeah. People haven't... <laughs> it didn't had, exist yet. <laughs> they didn't have that in the lab yet. They didn't They didn't know... Uh, <laughs> They didn't invent that strain, so uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was like a weird light thing that was kind of enjoyable about this movie that you know um, has a lot of enjoyable things, but uh, mm-hmm. that don't really come together into yeah. something. I mean, the music parts are all quite enjoyable. the The soundtrack, as, as you've both said, maybe not like the height of Prince's work or whatever, but like there's, there's some there's some really good tracks on there, and like the. Uh, the accompanying you know filmmaking for those moments are all great but yeah this very strange i guess yeah pre-code maybe is where it's placed uh kind of uh love triangle with a weird you know big suit crime element uh, (laughs) is just like doesn't doesn't quite work for me well it's no fun to depend on other people for rides especially not when you're used to taking them for rides the way you do what do you want from me, Mary? To know what you want from me. I want to take you on a trip to the moon. Who's paying? Three. I do like how big the suits are going at some point. Was there an album? Is this is this tied to a specific album, or is it just like a soundtrack under yeah. the Cherry Moon? the The album is uh, Parade, oh, Parade, and it's like also the soundtrack album. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I haven't listened to that. I've obviously heard Kiss, and that gets a very mm-hmm. powerful uh, needle drop. In this oh, movie. that's fantastic! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that move that almost brought me back to like liking this movie. Uh, but you know, it's just one of those things where it's like I like moments of it, but I can't quite you know do it i remember i gotta find out what fucking like concert film it was or something i just remember being at my friend's house in middle school and his mom was like a prince obsessive mm-hmm. she was always watching like concert films purple rain yeah. music videos just like she was ahead you know my uh my aunt but i was yeah. just like watching uh oh sorry no, I, was gonna... I was just gonna say I, she was watching this concert film once and i was just like blown away like i'd heard kiss on the radio before uh i i'd heard maybe one or two other songs but i was just like what the fuck is this? Uh-huh. I, want, I want to track that down. I don't know which one it was. No, I was just gonna say my my aunt is like a huge Prince fan, and like every time I'd come over, she'd be watching like concert films and stuff like that. So, I guess it's maybe it's a, a personality type or something like that. But sorry, JT, to interrupt. No, it's all good. I just yeah. wish now I'm just I, I should have brought like a performance movie or there's one that Prince directed after this which i guess is kind of a continuation of purple rain graffiti bridge in 1990 that like i'm also like i i don't know what to make of it but uh yeah it's disappointing like i get what prince is going for not at like having the music sort of background it and i think that like also makes this a very strange movie like for just being like a 30s like pre-code screwball like with that score is very weird, but I, I don't know. It's like, I, I know how good the man is with a guitar, 
and I want to fucking see it. It's like not even like a little bit. It's like I, I just like it really is doing a disservice by how magnificent of a performer Prince is to not like let him indulge in like any like stage stuff like that. So it is a, a bummer. Um, I, I also there, there's the scene where uh, he, he goes to get Mary at the end while she's about to fly away and basically like a re- recreation of Casablanca's climax. Um, and, and that scene's really well shot, too. There's a lot of stuff where it's like uh, the, the stark black and white and like the fog is so well utilized. But I don't know. It's a uh, it's a movie I struggled with a lot, but definitely got a lot out of, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. The Casablanca reference kind of just feels half baked too like it's yeah, just like it's, exactly like it looks really good but it doesn't look like it's not like it doesn't go any deeper than just reminding you of casablanca and, he, and, he, and he, he gets her too which is kind of he's like she's like all right i'll come you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> well she doesn't exactly agree well, he yeah. just drives away <laughs> her. but you know hey sometimes anyway um... <laughs> <laughs> let's stop talking about that <laughs> i'm just gonna give this three bullets i was on the like edge of like two and a half a gentleman's two and a half of course and three but it's like this is a really weird movie and i admire it some for that i mean while like that i was like looking at my phone a lot during parts that just like were like a little aimless like it's going for a lot and is like a unique way for Prince to spend the studio's money and like the charm of his character and to like see his quirks emerge through Mm -hmm. filmmaking is fun. There's like a great album because of this. I I don't know. There's enough for me to like, just like overall, like, yeah, I like it, but like um, it it really doesn't work. Um, Like piece by piece, there are things that you can pick out and enjoy, but it just doesn't cohere in a way where I won't, like could confidently like reclaim this as a masterpiece. Yeah, I want to. I want to go. You know, we all want to reclaim something. You know, we all want to. Every time there's a movie, it looks like the critics are wrong. We want to get in there. We want to get the meat, the good meat off the bones before everyone picks at it, and it's just you know a fucking <laughs> carcass again. Um, but. I'm not quite there with this movie. Although I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. And I haven't listened to Parade yet, but if that album's good, then this movie's worth it. You know what I mean? I'm glad whatever, you know, this movie did to inspire Prince to make another good album. That that would be worth it alone. Um, you know, I I kind of I guess a lot of what I appreciate about this too, I do come it comes from from me being a Prince fan too and I kind of just want to see him you know, I want to explore his work. I want him, you know, to have, you know, I haven't seen Purple Rain yet. So that seems like his classic, right? So I want to see his classic. I want to see his flop. I want to see, you know, his sleeper B-side. So, I, you know, this kind of helps paint that full picture. But for the movie itself, two and a half bullets. But Eddie, what about you? I'm going to make you guys do like Led Zeppelin song remains the same one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Mr. Rock over here. <laughs> I, look, I like rock music. That's good. I like rock. You guys... I like rock music. To... I I'm Mister Everything. That's what they call me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I like nothing except country and rap. Actually, <laughs> I, 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 I really struggle with this movie because there are admirable things that we've talked about, of course, 
but the the simple truth of it is that i i found it pretty unpleasant uh for the most part it like most of my enjoyment was like from a distance even when i was really admiring the cinematography or the soundtrack it it was hard for me to negotiate that with my overall feelings of like where the the core of the movie was heading kind of and i i feel bad giving it this score because like it was wrongfully hated on by critics you know mm-hmm. it shouldn't have been a razzy movie that's stupid i disagree with those people and people who hate on it for being a vanity project hell i could use more vanity <laughs> <laughs> but i'm gonna go two bullets on this one. I, I didn't quite like this one i i didn't hate it or anything like that but uh if I'm being honest with myself, I gotta go. I gotta just shoot Prince twice, even though he's already dead. Follow your heart. Yeah, and hell, I might give Purple Rain a five. We, you know, you'll never, you'll never find out though. Damn, you'll never know. We don't use sites. We don't yeah. use sites like that that let us indicate our movie ratings. So. I think it's time to move on to the universally beloved favorite segment of the podcast, the email segment. Loved by people everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> International acclaim. <laughs> Just won a Goldman Award. Um. <laughs> People just skip to uh, Malcolm in the Middle and then right away scrub to the end of the emails. You can always reach out to us at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. Our first email comes from Felix. It says, Most hated films. Hi, Extended Clip Gang. We've heard a lot about the films you like on the show, but what about the ones you dislike the most? Be interesting to hear one from recent, one from older eras to broaden out the discussion from whatever the current day's pet peeve is. Thanks, Felix. Whoa, you guys got anything off the top, off the top of the dome? Yeah, yeah. You know, I was because, you know, not to peel back the curtain, but Eddie did feed us this question before the episode. (laughs) So I had a little bit of time to think about it. And I came to the conclusion that I don't usually watch older movies that I dislike. Or definitely, definitely not to the point where it's, you know, I feel strong, you know, strong negative feelings about them. And uh, maybe that's, maybe that just means I'm not watching enough older movies. Maybe I'm being too selective and, you know, sticking to the canon too much. So for like the oldest movie that I really feel, um, you know, strong negative feelings about, I mean, I do have to give Soul Man a shout out. That's a very shout out. Maybe I should shut it out, though, because it's a very, uh, very negative movie. You know, I mean, pe- we like to indulge in, you know, uh, ironic tastelessness from time to time. But, uh, you know, watching Soul Man, you know, a, a movie where, uh, you know, a white uh, high school kid gets a uh, black face. So he gets into Harvard. It wasn't a fun time. It wasn't a good movie. Um, uh, also, I dislike uh, Dead Poet Society a lot. I don't I don't know why. I just it kind of puts a poor taste. Poor taste in my mouth. A bunch of you know, um, poetry boys, you know, running around saying their poems. It's mostly just because of the teacher aspect of it too. I don't, I don't know. I feel like they gave teachers the wrong idea. And then recently, <laughs> um, I, I really dislike the gallows for some reason. Um, what was that? It's a very unforgettable, like Blumhouse um, 
uh, horror <laughs> unforgettable. movie. Unforgettable. Unforgettable. Did I say unforgettable? <laughs> I guess. I mean, I haven't forgotten it. I, um, um, forgettable is what I meant. Uh, Blumhouse movie that is like kind of at the back end of found footage trend. This is like one of the last wide release found footage movies I remember, and it was just very just have these very like four whiny high school characters that are very unlikable and visually it's just, I don't know, not like a lot of found footage movies got lazy to a certain point. And like, this is one of the the laziest I've seen and it was just boring, annoying and um, just nothing interesting about it. And I just, I remember sitting there being unhappy. So uh, (laughs) that's why I don't like it. But what about you guys? I'm passing the ball. One, I think we just love to talk about movies we love on this show. I want to love all of the movies. I really do. I promise you. I go into each one being like, I hope I love this. Um, and like, so I, I, but also I feel like I share your opinion, Malcolm, that there aren't a lot of like older movies I hate. I mean, I think like in general, there was a like a higher hit ratio of like good shit being out there. Even like there are a lot of movies that I feel like I've seen by like generally like no name directors that will be on like TCM that I've like watched for like, Oh, Cary Grant is in this. I want to like, I would one day like to finish his filmography and it's just like a remarkably standard like comedy or whatever that I don't really remember the name or like the director and just like things like that. Um, I'm trying to think of if there's anything in particular along those lines that I really hate explicitly. Um, (laughs) oh, To Kill a Mockingbird. That's like a classic that I remember, like, even when I, like, when you read the book in school, I was like, okay, this, this is all right book. Um, and then just the movie is like one of the most, like for one of those canon classics that was just like so remarkably boring and like unforgettable in like film form that just like mm-hmm. um it sucks dick and like gregory peck who i like really fucking like um like gives a very very boring performance um that it's just a bad and not interesting movie <laughs> damn that's harsh words <laughs> what about recently though um okay Let's uh, our eyes to recent pictures. I've been occasionally I do this thing where I'll watch like liberal like dog shit just to like (laughs) keep up with like that. It's like there's an itch in my brain where it's like maybe because I like grew up in in a more generally conservative area, like I can tolerate like conservative like dumbness. But that's like I think. Uh, unless, like it's usually like not as smug. I mean, save for like Dinesh D'Souza type stuff, but that like I feel like people have made fun of that shit to death. But like I watched, uh, I think I talked about it, but I watched the Comey Rule, uh, Irresistible, fuck, uh, I guess Book Smart. I would lump into that category. What's it's Irresistible? Like, What's Irresistible? That's the John Stewart movie he made oh, about 2016. Fuck. Uh, with Holy Steve Carell, it's about money and politics. Thank I you forgot much. all about that one. That one, that one seems <laughs> awful. Yeah, yeah, that one's Uncle Booksmart. That one's insane. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Booksmart. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> I also don't really dislike old movies. I hate to say it. Uh, there's some boring ones, but like, yeah, in terms of like canon classics, fucking, um, you know what I hated was film by Samuel Beckett. I, I really just couldn't get through that one. I mean, I got through it, obviously. I had to watch it and take notes on it, but um, was not a fan of that. I was like, come on, dude. It's You got Buster Keaton in your movie. Dude, give him a little more to do. <laughs> Sawdust and Tinsel by Bergman. That might actually be the most boring movie I've ever watched, to be completely honest. I would probably rather do anything than rewatch like men, women, and children. That would be that would be very hard to sit there. I'm gearing up for a rewatch of that. That seems that seems like a good time Honestly, to me. Yeah, now that I say it, like that, that's one of the worst movies ever. But if I was right, if I was with the right people, maybe I yeah, could, yeah it's not quite there. I, I think Chef might actually. I might. Yeah. Chef oh, Chef just seems like one. a huge piece of shit. Yeah, I think a double feature of Chef and Iron Man um, would kind of be a good statement on why the last 10 years of cinema have been terrible, uh, or at least of mainstream Hollywood cinema. Yeah, so that's that. Next email comes to us from Jack Hansen, and he says, helping with Hong and hitting the bong. Howdy, extended clip. I wanted to start by saying that I love the pod and wanted to thank you three for excellent... Ugh, excellent film recommendations. You guys really delivered with some great episodes in 2020, and I'm pumped to see what you have in store for the rest of 2021. I figured since you guys do a double feature each week, I'd go ahead and pitch a double hitter and ask about two major filmmakers from South Korea. First up is Hong Sang-soo. What entries from Hong's career would you recommend as a good starting point into his filmography? I've only seen Right Now, Wrong Then, and would like to check out some more of his films. I know that you three are big fans. So what would you recommend for guys like me who want to dive deeper into the works of Hong Sang-soo? The second question I want to ask is about Oscar winner Bong Joon-ho. It's been about a year since he won that Oscar gold, but I think it's important we focus on the real prestigious honor of being under the crosshairs of the extended clip scope. How How do you three feel about hitting up the bong i recently finished this filmography so i'd love to hear your thoughts i have a good feeling that eddie may have a quality take on okja thanks for the great content keep up the great work jack well that was a mouthful (laughs) (laughs) nice long email that's nice that's some good content for us i appreciate the good sentiments structure he said he was he said what he was going to say and then he said it damn (laughs) direct to the people all right i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna jump off jump off the base i'm gonna go first um for the hong all right immediately what came to mind i feel like the day he arrives that's where i started and i felt that was a good place and then i think my this is my thinking the day he arrives then on the occasion of remembering the turning gate one two punch i feel like that'd be a good way to get that's a good hong intro that's powerful that is a powerful one-two punch. Um, I would say that is an approach. And that is like a classic flow chart. You know, you could take either route, which one you want to go. Uh, I, I think you got to sample both the earlier works and the, the stuff from 2010 onward. So I would say the day he arrives is a really great entryway. Uh, unless you want to further investigate his relationship with Kim Min Hee. Then I would say check out one of the other recent ones, maybe the day after. Uh, save on the beach 
save that one. Just <laughs> save it. Uh, it's a masterpiece. Just save it. Um, early work. On the occasion of remembering the turning gate is an absolute classic. And uh, so is Tale of Cinema. And so is Virgin Strip Bear by her bachelor. Uh, Virgin Strip Bear, very harsh. Yeah. <laughs> very depressing film. Out of out of all the Hongs, I feel like that was the one I found the least accessible. And I liked it. I liked it. But yeah. It's the least pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. I mean, the title doesn't lie. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, I mean, I was basically going to say, I feel like I've seen less Hong than the both of you, but I need to like, uh, I just like parsing his filmography out. He's one of those guys that's so fantastic that I like to like to savor the filmography. Some guys, I'm just scarfing it down. I want it all now, but Hong, every now and then is a treat. But I was going to say The Day He Arrives and uh, Tale of Cinema, because like while my like knowledge of both his later and earlier work is limited, I feel like that's like a good representation of it and uh, both amazing movies. I agree. Those are amazing movies. <laughs> In terms of Bong Joon-ho, maybe you've heard me disparage Parasite on this show. Maybe you've heard me disparage Okja on the show. I think Okja is garbage. Uh, I think it has one really great set piece though, but like it's it just, it's a terrible movie, but that set piece is enough to let you know that Bong is a real deal filmmaker. Um, and it's the big chase through the city. Uh, and it's, uh, I, I just really remember hating Okja. I thought Memories of Murder was quite good. Um, and Parasite also showed flashes of like stylistic brilliance. I, th- I think he's like a really, really strong filmmaker I I just don't think he's, or let me rephrase that actually. I think he's a really, really strong director and maybe not a complete filmmaker. Damn. Um, But I I, I think he's a really, really strong director. Yeah, I I might be the wrong person to ask this question because I've only, I think I've only seen Parasite and I I enjoyed Parasite, you know, well enough. You know, I thought it was all right. You know, I I had a few issues with it, but like you said, like, um, I mean, you know, just to compare it, you know, of course... They got the Oscar, you know, shit like that. A lot of compared to a lot of Oscar fare, I thought it was definitely. You could see Bong Joon Ho is yeah. definitely on another level than uh, a lot of those people. It's easily the best Oscar winner since Green Book. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I think <laughs> we're all in agreement there. Um, yeah, that's all I got to say. Um, Snowpiercer. I think I watched it when it came out, and I don't remember it. JT, what's your Bong Joon Ho opinion? Yeah, I don't really have much of one other than like I think what's already been stated so far. I feel like I liked him a little bit more than uh, Eddie, but like I don't know. It's just someone who I'm not particularly interested in, like and delving into his filmography. Like I agree with what Eddie was saying about him being like a like a competent and like good director, but the type of like very polished like like sometimes like more of the hitchcock rift like movies like just i I don't know i'm not i uh i feel like not and i I don't want to like say this like necessarily disparaging like like i don't want it to sound too harsh but i feel like if i had seen less i probably would be more game for him because I think there are a lot of people that do um, like the types of things he does like a little bit better and is more polished, but like, I don't know. I'm just, uh, 
I like it, but I'm not like gonna go a little too further without uh, any. When you when you had seen less, oh, do you mean like earlier in your cinematic journey? Yeah, that's what I mean. Him? Like, okay. I think he's that someone that sure. it's like uh, a director where it's like easy to tell their style and like easy to feel mm, that out for sure. And I think like there are a lot of directors now that I probably like I'm a little bit more forgiving for because I have that like sentimental attachment with them. Where it's like if I uh, like got into Bong like right out the gate, um, I I would have eaten all this stuff up. But just now, I uh, I don't know. It's good, but there are better things out there. Mm-hmm. There are better things out there. <laughs> like That's Hong. What keeps us going. <laughs> yeah, the the two Korean filmmakers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, he brought it to the table. We're gonna, we're gonna go, we're gonna go there. He also called it a double hitter of a question, which you know, for the baseball fans out there, uh, sometimes they actually play two games in one day. Yeah, a double hitter. I think it's called double header. It's true, but I think he said double hitter. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Wait, let me see. Did he? Yeah, he did. He said pitch a double hitter. Well, I'm sorry, Jack. That's just not how baseball works. Yeah, maybe. you could play a doubleheader if you're. Oh, I I think there were some legends who pitched both ends of a double uh doubleheader, but a double hitter, huh? What would that even entail? Uh, I haven't heard of that before. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> sorry to dissect. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I, I don't mean to go in on uh, listeners. Um, uh, why don't you watch a little bit less movies and a little bit more baseball? How about that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> next week on the show, uh, we are going to be joined by a friend once again. Uh, Hessa is going to be joining us. Uh, you may know her on Twitter at Zero Suit Camus uh, to talk about two films about Italian fascism. Salo, or The 120 Days of Sodom, and The Night Porter. So that episode, uh, already can't wait, and I'm sure that you are feeling the same way. I think I that's going to be a long one. That's I'm calling it right now, <laughs> yeah. and it's going to be a banger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Salo, I mean, I'm ready to go Salo mode. You know, there's going to be four people on the podcast. We're going to be the four fascists of the podcast. That's how we got to treat it. You know what I mean? Really make it our own. That's the new version of Salo is like four wealthy podcasters in a Zoom call. And they get unfriended style killed. (laughs) Yeah. uh, At Extended Clip 69 on Twitter. Patreon.com slash Extended Clip. And any anything else you want to leave our fans with, our listeners with? I don't want to, you know, say that you're a fan just because you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you might just be just checking it out. You might not be a fan yet, and that's fine. You could just listen to you it. Be turning your dial, finding this at the end of the episode. You don't have to. You don't have to be that into this podcast, but as long as you listen to it, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so that's all you have to say. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I guess JT's silence. Well, I think okay, I got something. I just want all of our listeners to have a pleasant and erotic Valentine's Day, whether it be alone or with a partner. Yeah, we love love. This year, we love love. (laughs) We we love love so much. We should never mind. We should end the podcast. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) uh, Goodbye.
We got the set in. Sunshine, fresh air. We got the team behind us. So let's play two.